Welcome to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. Tonight, Victor Anthony Lopez Carmen will tell us about the OESA pre medical program at Harvard University. And later, guest host Sabrina Avila chats with Tate Walker. Right now, host Lanasha Puati talks with Leticia Redhouse, director of American Indian Foods, a program that helps develop sustainable economics for Native American made products. On the phone with me is Latasha Redhouse, American Indian Foods Program Director. Welcome to our show, Latasha. Hi, good good afternoon. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, so I am Dinesh. I am a mother of four. Um, I grew up in southeastern Utah on the Navajo Nation Reservation. And yeah, and, and kind of worked my way through to, through school and and different careers and found my way to join the IAC team. So yeah, just a, a little bit about myself. I think first and foremost, I'm I'm a mom and a, and a huge foodie. And can you tell us what is American Indian Foods? Yeah, so the American Indian Foods um, is a program that is offered through the Intertribal Agriculture Council. It was started in 1998 through a partnership with USDA Foreign Ag Service. Um, prior to that, um, IAC had uh, released a, um, a certification trademark or certifying trademark that proved authenticity of a producer or artwork or craft, um, and that's called the Made Produced by American Indian Trademark. Um, and that was, was uh, again, founded in 93. Um, and so American Indian Foods um, program is a way that we can market and promote these authentic, owned and operated and made and produced by American Indian um, goods um, f- from fibers to food um, to arts and crafts. So there's, there's quite a bit of different categories that are included under that trademark. But in, in, in general terms, the American Indian Foods um, program is, has a mission to promote and market um, Native American ag, agriculture entrepreneurs, and just and, and anyone wanting to, you know, further their businesses. And I know you mentioned that you were a foodie yourself, but how did you get interested in indigenous foods, producers, and agriculture? Growing up on the reservation, there wasn't like this term of rancher or farmer or harvester. I mean, we we grew corn, um, squash, watermelon um, out of necessity, right? Like it was something that we we just did, um, and it was part of my life all while growing up on the on the res. And because of that connection, when I left for college, I initially was wanting to um, pursue a a degree in nutrition, but yeah, it kind of, again, just kind of veered off and I, I chose a path in marketing and journalism and corporate communications. Again, kind of found my way back to, to agriculture. I did work for a for-profit organization out in Salt Lake. Um, it was a, a supplement company and they were so into nutrition. And again, I just found my passion for nutrition um, and then found my way to the Ute tribe, worked with them. They also had a, a bison, a bison operation that I really enjoyed. And, and that was my kind of pathway into um, introducing me into like this whole movement of, of food sovereignty and um, needing to um, bring back or connect with our traditional foods. Just so happened a few months later, IAC announced the position for the American Indian Foods Program Director, jumped on that opportunity, and now I'm here. And so kind of been, been great. Um, so it's been awesome working with different Native American producers um, that are either, you know, focused on community, uh, community food systems, um, innovations and, and different missions um, to grow their food there, or even just entrepreneurs who want to seek out international opportunities through um, export and import. 
And do you see an increasing interest in indigenous foods and producers? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when I did work for the Ute tribe during that time, the Quapaw Nation had just announced the opening of their processing facility. And that was just an eye opener. Went to go visit them. They share just how they keep everything internally. They have a greenhouse. They have honey that they source locally. And then, you know, just a, a full suite of different products that I felt like, wow, this is, this is great. And I feel like just that, just that um, model, I think really encouraged a lot of other tribes to look at, you know, um, how they can feed their people and how they can continue to create a stronger food system where all of our you know, people are being fed nutrition, nutritious and culturally relevant foods. But yes, so there is there is a huge movement going on right now. And, and there there's just so many amazing things that a lot of tribal communities are have initiated. Um, so it's just been a beautiful, beautiful time. And do you see this increase as a part of people looking into indigenous food as a necessity or as kind of going back to their roots and wanting to grow their own produce or even just wanting to support indigenous producers or farmers? I believe it's a mixture of both. You know, the pandemic hit and we really, some tribal, like very rural communities uh, realized just how important it was that they had these different grocery or had access to groceries or access to, to produce, you know, I think a lot of uh, tribal leaders took that and now are building their own food sovereignty initiatives, or they're trying to create innovative approaches to, to meet their tribal goals um, or their tribal food sovereignty goals. And then there was this, this whole movement about reconnecting and reclaiming our foods in a way of, of continuing the sharing and passing on of culture and tradition. Um, and I feel like that's, that's been an ongoing thing, um, but really kind of became a powerful movement. Um, this again, during the pandemic, as we were all kind of uncertain about what was going to happen or, um, you know, we were um, not able to meet with family or gather with, with relatives. And so I think this, being able to to have the foods that we that connect us with our our people and our family um, was just was just important during this chaotic time. But yeah, I, I think it's a mixture of both. Um, but together, I think they've been really in reinforcing the need to feed our communities, um, the need for more groceries that carry. Uh, you know, healthy products. Um, so yeah, just a, I would say it's a mixture of both. Oh, yes, definitely. And do you see any challenges uh, for somebody who is wanting to become a small producer? Are there any supply chain issues? There are supply chain issues, no matter what phase you are in in the whole business cycle, um, whether you're small, medium, or you're already a large um, operation, there seems to be kind of this barrier that this uh, COVID um, put on, on our supply chain. But I think it just depends on the person. If that's your goal and if that's what you want to do is, is start an operation, I say just do it. Jump in um, there's so many different resources. Um, the Intertribal Agriculture Council offers different programming. Um, there's like a beginner beginner farmer type of uh, resources that IAC offers. Um, they also provide through our technical assistance specialist network. We also provide one-on-one um, -on -one guidance and support. So yeah, if you if if there are smaller, um, you know, if there are producers out there that are wanting to begin their operation, I really encourage you to reach out to our organization to find out what resources are available or 
we can help build a business plan or um, provide feasibility studies, you know, just, yeah, I, I really recommend just getting started. You never know until you start, right? Oh, yes. And if there's anybody who is wanting to maybe try an Indigenous food producer, where can someone find um, find information on where they can go for a Indigenous food producer? Well, we house a trademark directory um, on our website at www.indianagfoods.org. And a lot of our producers that are um, approved users of our Made Produced by American Indian trademark um, can be found on this trademark directory. And it's conveniently like broken out into um, states. So if you're wanting to support someone locally in Arizona, you can press Arizona and a list of all of the producers will um, pop up. But also, again, if, if it's not just indigenous food producers, there's also value-added producers that are value-added businesses that are also participating in our program. Um, so you'll find um, things like barbecue sauce that incorporate prickly prickly pears or salsa where like one of our producers grows um, just a bunch of, an abundance of, of produce. And so this is a way that she can um, diversify her portfolio by incorporating this value-added product. Uh, um, so yeah, it's just uh, a great celebration of food on that website. So I really encourage consumers to go and check it out and find their next favorite pantry staple. And can you share um, any benefits to going to indigenous producer, producers, like why traditional foods are important to the youth and their future? You know, we talk about how language is, is an important aspect to continue our, to ensure that our culture survives, like all of this modernization. Um, and I think that is also true with food. Um, it, it's an important piece to our identity. It's, it's an, yeah, it's an important piece to our identity. Um, you know, we, we, when we gather together, the centerpiece, you know, what's, what's at the centerpiece of our table is, is food. And so these traditional foods are just absolutely important in continuing and ensuring that our cultural stories are being shared from generation to generation. And then I, I think a lot of the tribes, you know, our ancestors weren't ones to make a Facebook post to share all of this knowledge. It was all um, by, by word of mouth, right? We all shared stories. Um, and so I think this is a way we can reconnect with our elders as well to ensure that we, we get those stories and we can share with our kids. And that's kind of why I, I love what I'm doing is because, um, you know, because I have kids and it's important to know these stories. It's important to, to it, it, I love hearing my grandma talk about, you know, why she grew food and I get to share that with my kids, that same connection. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's an absolute, um, critical piece in, in sustaining our culture and our tradition um, and just overall who we are as Native people. Where do you see American Indian foods in five years and how has it evolved? That's a really good question. I think <laughs> with the American Indian foods program, I think um, organizationally IAC has bigger plans I think in, in five years, we just want, you know, this, this regenerative and holistic type of uh, approach when it comes to agriculture. And so, yeah, just uh, trying to make sure everything works in sync with one another. And where can someone go to learn more about American Indian foods and how can someone contact you if they have further questions? Yeah, so you can visit the IAC website that's www.indianag.org or i encourage you to attend any of our regional conferences that we host you know, throughout the year or even attend one of our 
annual conferences. Um, we're hosting the 2021 annual conference this year in December, on December 7th through the 9th in Las Vegas. If you wanna learn about Indian agriculture, totally encourage um, individuals to attend. Also, you could visit um, the trademark directory by visiting www.indianagfoods.org. Well, I would like to thank you, Latasia, for taking time out to talk to us today to tell us more about the American Indian foods. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Coming up, we'll talk with Victor Anthony Lopez Carmen. Support for Radio Phoenix comes in part from Native Health, located at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, near the corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix. Native Health is also located at 777 West Southern Avenue near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads in Mesa. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. I'm host Lanasha Puati. On the phone with me is Victor Anthony Lopez Carmen, a third year medical student at Harvard from the Yaqui and Crow Creek Sioux tribes, who will talk to us about the Ohiyesa pre medical program. Welcome to our show, Victor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, my name is Victor, but my Dakota name is Waukiamani, and my Yaki name is Machil. And I grew up out here in Tucson, very involved in my uh, Yaki culture, tradition, going to ceremonies all the time. Uh, my mom worked for the tribe, so uh, I grew up uh, going to the Boys and Girls Club on the res and going to the different... Um, communities that we have here in Tucson. We have a reservation. We also have a few inner city uh, Yaqui barrios that I spent a lot of time in. Uh, but at the same time, my dad is Dakota and uh, he found it really important to make sure I was connected to um, my Dakota side as well. So he took me to ceremonies. Uh, we'd go to South Dakota uh, and just make sh- making sure that uh, I was staying connected on both sides. And uh, both of my parents were pretty involved in, in Native American rights movement. So I grew up going to a lot of Pana Native American uh, rights movement, like protests, going to Alcatraz a lot uh, for those uh, the different gatherings that they have there throughout the year, uh, even going to different countries where there were indigenous rights movements coming up, things like that. So I just grew up really, it, it was really, there was a lot of importance put on indigenous rights when I was growing up and uh, that made me kind of want to give back. So I got really um, interested in the sciences and uh, that was my passion. And I just wanted to figure out a way to use the science and um, the the field of science to give back to my communities. And then uh, that sort of mix and experiencing that firsthand uh, led me into medicine where I am now. And uh, yeah, so I'm a current medical student. I'm a third year and hoping to uh, apply into pediatrics. Oh, wow. That is awesome. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And speaking about your 
education going into medicine. Can you tell us more about the OHIESA pre-medical program? Yeah, so the program uh, is at Harvard, but it's through the Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is uh, one of uh, the teaching hospitals of Harvard Medical School. And it's uh, a program specifically for Native American tribal college and community college students. We're emphasizing passion for the health of of, uh, indigenous peoples, the health of their communities. Um, We're emphasizing that traditional measurements like one's transcripts don't matter as much because we're recognizing that there are a lot of structural barriers that have historically and still continue today to exclude indigenous youth uh, and young people and indigenous people of all ages who are very capable from entering the field of medicine um, because there's, uh, we need to, to recognize that these structural barriers are real. And because of that, uh, we chose not to ask for transcripts. Um, we don't really care about recommendation letters uh, in terms of you know the clout of the people writing them. Uh, we just want to get to know these students and essentially uh, we're going to bring eight to Boston uh, to work in the hospitals, not not work like independently, but to work with uh, physicians who are willing to take them on uh, and, and shadow physicians in various fields of expertise. We're going to try to make it as diverse as we can in terms of exposure um, to like OB-GYN, uh, surgery, basic medicine, pediatrics. So we'll be doing that for three weeks. So come away with some key skills as well. We're going to set up a few things like CPR training. Uh, there's various training centers in the hospital, like what do you do if someone uh, someone uh, uh, starts choking or what do you do if someone's heart stops? And so we want uh, them to leave with some, some basic skills as well that they can, they can take forward. Uh, and then we're going to provide uh, all the students' laptops because uh, we want to meet with them four times over the year after the three weeks end and uh, just kind of catch up with them, see if there's anything else we can do to support them during those, uh, those four meetings. And then at the end of that, uh, all the participants will get a letter of recommendation from uh, Harvard Medical School faculty that they can use uh, in the future, whether they decide to go into medicine or whether they uh, decide to become a nurse. Uh, doesn't really matter yet. We're just excited to meet these students and and uh, yeah, bring them in next summer. Oh, wow. That does sound like a great opportunity for the Native community, especially getting hands-on experience, getting all of this education from the program. Um, but I understand you also have another program called the Frontline Indigenous Partnership Program. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah. So the Frontline Indigenous Partnership Program is also at the Bergman Women's Hospital. And uh, that is one of the places where the OHESA pre-medical program is sitting under. And that is because the Frontline Indigenous Partnership Program has a, a more a longer history of partnering with tribes in the Southwest specifically, um, making connections between the Brigham and Women's Hospital and various tribes in the Southwest. I know that the Frontline Indigenous Partnership, they're going to, um, to connect um, pretty soon, I think um, in December, send some doctors from the Brigham Women's Hospital to to learn from uh, how the um, the, the Navajo uh, to, to to go to some of the hospitals in uh, on the Navajo reservation and, and essentially learn uh, how care is provided in indigenous context and that's just one of the the ways that they're partnering but uh, we wanted to put the program under a place where they already had experience working with indigenous peoples. Uh, and one of the faculty of the Frontline Indigenous uh, Partnership is one of the co-founders for the program with myself as well. Uh, so we feel really good about um, having a faculty member and an Indigenous student working together uh, on this program and making sure that uh, the program has longevity. And speaking about the the OHIESA program. Um, who is OHIESA, or I believe also known as Dr. Charles Eastman? He is uh, the first Native American man in the U.S. to become a physician. He grew up 
you know, in the midst of the Dakota uprising around Minnesota. And this at this time, the Dakota people were essentially being starved. Their land uh, was being invaded against prior agreements. And uh, they uh, had, a, had an uprising. And because after this uprising, um, some of the things that happened after that, uh, I think a lot of people know about the Dakota 38, uh, largest mass execution um, uh, ordained by the U.S. government in history. And uh, a lot of the Dakotas uh, as well had to flee uh, north to other Dakota territories in, in Canada, in modern day Canada. And that's what Ohiesa did. So he and his family uh, went up to the village in Canada and he lived there until he was uh, in his teenage years. And then um, his dad uh, eventually reappeared and uh, he thought that his dad had died after the uprising and maybe could have been one of the Dakota 38 or one of the Dakota people who were thrown into prison um, without due process. But his dad found him, brought him back, uh, and then that's how he started uh, entering into school. So he entered into a school. Eventually, um, he traveled and he uh, applied to Dartmouth, where he went to undergrad. Uh, and then he went to medical school at Boston University. And uh, it, his story is really uh, a powerful one, I think, that still resonates today. He is very prolific um, in his writings and his health policy advocacy. Um, at the federal level as well, but he also was someone who uh, was very connected to, to his indigenous community, um, wrote about how important indigenous rights are, how important our cultures are, our language. And so I see um, him as a, as a role model that, uh, that we could, you know, base the program off of, um, given all that he did. And I think, uh, you know, he's something that, that we can, he's a person that, um, that can inspire uh, native youth today. So that's why we uh, named the program after him. Do you see a lot of Native Americans applying for medical school? I think, truthfully, no, uh, compared to other uh, racial groups where the least represented and there's um, the least amount of us are applying compared to those groups as well. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. There's not many Native Americans in medicine. Uh, you know, we do have some and they're all doing amazing things, but I think we're all trying to figure out ways to increase representation in this field and just seeing how important it is, uh, for instance, uh, when uh, Native providers taking care of Native patients, I think there's another level of understanding, care, um, improved care, improved cultural competency, and uh, things like that, that, you know, that we want to promote by having more natives in, in this field. And how does the OHIESA pre-medical program combat these low numbers of Native Americans in medicine? Community colleges and tribal colleges uh, are, you know, in my experience, very important for providing accessible education to Native Americans. Um, I grew up in a family where my mom was working for the tribe uh, until I was uh, through middle school. Uh, and then she decided to go to school to become a nurse. And she went to uh, Pima Community College in Tucson because it was accessible to her as, as a Native woman. And uh, I know a lot of other Native people who've done something similar of all ages uh, and then who've gone to tribal colleges as well. And I think they're very important across uh, Indian country, across you know, the country, um, and providing that, that pathway. But at the same time, a lot of these schools don't have the same access to opportunities uh, that would essentially uh, help them get into medical school. Uh, and part of that is because of funding. Another part is because of uh, the, the application process to medical school. Uh, who's writing your recommendations, what kind of research did you do are sometimes important. And for instance, at a tribal college, there might not be a laboratory that's as prestigious as, uh, as a larger, more well-funded school that a Native student can do research in. And so I can go on and on, but I think um, 
these schools, tribal colleges, community colleges, they're very important, but there are uh, less opportunities for Native students who attend these places uh, to find their way into medical school and less pre-medical programs that are specifically geared towards them. So we wanted to create one that's specifically for these students to help uh, in, a, in a small way to, to help uh, give them the resources that a lot of other students might have access to that, that they don't. And speaking about the resources that maybe some individuals have um, challenges applying for either medical school or even thinking of taking the first steps in where do they start to even go to medical school, do you have any advice for the youth now wanting to get involved in medicine or public health? Is there something that they can do now? So one of the the most important things I would say is when you think about the application process, it it can be very daunting and it can lead people to wanting to check all the boxes that you see other people checking. For instance, oh, I need to do a year of research or people think, um, oh, I need to do this many hours of shadowing doctors. Uh, And sometimes that can take precedence or it can feel more important than your passions. But I think in the end, uh, following your passions, what are you passionate about, about health? What specifically makes you passionate? And following that, I think, is the key. uh, Because one of the things that medical schools uh, prioritize most is leadership and commitment. And if you're following your passions uh, for why you want to go into medicine uh, and you stick with that, then eventually lead to leadership roles in that passion. And I think that is an important base to have. Um, And you can build off of that. And not only um, will that lead to less burnout, it'll give you energy for your studies uh, and allow you to, you know, to have a good base to jump off of in terms of uh, uh, making connections. And then um, the other thing is, yeah, take, you know, especially in undergrad, uh, take care of your grades. It's very important. Uh, Medical schools really do prioritize that and don't be afraid to reach out for help. I know that it can be difficult to go to, uh, to school away from your community, which a lot of Native Americans do. Um, I know that it can be difficult uh, just being a Native student in these places and trying to, to maintain family life, culture, grades, or what, all the responsibilities. Uh, that's why it's important. Don't be afraid to reach out for help uh, to, to make sure that, you know, that, you can reach your goals. I think that's very important. And can you tell us some of the success stories about individuals that have been involved with supportive medical school application programs? So there's some some physicians out there uh, who really have made a difference for a very long time. Uh, one of them is Dr. Tom Sequest. He runs the Four Directions Research Program at Harvard Medical School. Um, this is uh, another program at Harvard Medical School uh, that specifically is geared towards research opportunities. So they bring in eight Native American um, youth uh, who come in to do research at Harvard Medical School laboratories. And it is a little bit more competitive uh, because the rigor of the program is a little bit, um, uh, it's a little bit more rigorous because you're in a laboratory doing real research. But I did the program before and it, it was incredible uh, to be there with eight other students and to know that, you know, we're capable of doing this as well. He's run that program for a few decades now, which means, you know, he has probably over like 150, maybe 200 Native students that he's brought through and made a, a huge change in their lives. That's one of the success story. Another um, person I'm aware of is uh, Dr. Lori Alford. I know that she's mentored a lot. Um, she's a, a Navajo physician, surgeon. She's mentored a lot of Native youth, um, and she wrote a book, Scalpel and the Silver Bear, that really helped me a lot um, when I was applying and inspired me. Uh, and then there's Dr. Warren, Donald Warren, at University of North Dakota, who runs the InMed. It's called InMed program over there, and uh, I think they have the highest Native American uh, graduation rate out of their medical school. Uh, and I know that they have a lot of really unique programs for Native American students there. Uh, another different schools, University of Arizona, I know ASU, um, University of Minnesota, all have really amazing Native American programs there for medicine as well. Um, 
And so uh, these are some of the people and schools that I think would potentially be good to reach out to if you do have questions about the medical um, school application process as specific, um, because they have a lot of experience on, on Native American um, students entering into medicine and, and that pathway. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. And Victor, where can someone go to learn more about the OHESA pre-medical program? And how can someone contact you if they have any questions for you? Uh, yeah, so it's www.the-flip, which is F-L-I-P period O-R-G. Uh, and on that website, you will see the OHESA pre-medical program as a tab and uh, to contact me, uh, you'll see an email uh, at the bottom that uh, flip at partners.org. And if you ask about the OESA pre-medical program, uh, that email will, will come directly to me. And yeah, happy to answer any questions. And uh, yeah, and I just want to reiterate this program is for Native American tribal college and community college students of any age. Uh, don't have to be just have to be above 18. We don't care if you're 50. We don't care if you're 70, 40, 30. Uh, uh, you don't have to be like formally enrolled in your tribe. We know that there are many different circumstances. We do. Um, this is for Native Americans. The, you don't have to like show your um, tribal ID or anything like that. Um, but we do ask you to write about um, your connection to, to your community and things like that. And um, yeah, we're really excited to meet everyone. We want to get as many people applying to this as uh, possible. We would like to thank you, Victor, for taking time out to talk to us today to tell us more about the OHESA pre-medical program. You provided us with a lot of great information. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for everything that y'all do at Need Talk Arizona. Honor was mine to, to speak with you today. Coming up, guest host Sabrina Avila chats with Tate Walker. Support for Radio Phoenix comes in part from Native Health, located at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C near the corner of Central Avenue and Indian School Road in Phoenix, and in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. COVID vaccinations are available at both locations. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and Radio Phoenix. I'm your guest host, Sabrina Avila. On the phone with me is Tate Walker, Minikonju Lakota, and a citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, two-spirit storyteller. Welcome to our show, Tate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. All right. So could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? I, as you mentioned, I'm a citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. South Dakota. My family and I have been here about six and a half years now in the Autumn Peeposh lands of Phoenix. I have roughly 20 plus years multimedia journalism experience. I started out as a newspaper reporter and photographer, did that for quite a while and continued to freelance. Actually, I recently had an article in Apartment Therapy. And with that came some opportunities to do more editorial work within an indigenous framework. And that's been really fun. So I've been doing that for about a decade now, 10 years or so through outlets like Everyday Feminism and The Nation. And that's been super fulfilling. Lots of folks asked me to go around and uh, chat about issues uh, affecting Native folks today from that two-spirit or queer perspective. I have a 13-year-old 
child and so also have a perspective of a of a mom trying to make it in this world that's uh that's been a big um probably more of a factor now that they're a teenager but i also uh my day jobs all that's sort of now in the peripheral uh with the storytelling piece i do a lot of um poetry performance just had a performance at Palabras Bookstore for their six-year anniversary here in the community. I have uh, my first full-length poetry book coming out through Abalone Mountain Press, run by the Nay woman, Amber McCreary. That's due out in uh, next year. I'm super jazzed about that. And have a couple of other publications, uh, like anthologies that I'm part of. But my day job I work for, I'm the communications director for a local tribal school district. So that's that's me in a nutshell. All wrapped in one like a Swiss Army right. knife. <laughs> That's a really big gift. Right, right. That's amazing. So out of all of the previously mentioned careers, which is your favorite and why? Well, that's why I like to call myself a two-spirit storyteller. Everything I've done, everything I just mentioned is within the framework of storytelling. And for Lakota people and a lot of indigenous people, storytelling has just been the way we pass down information and history and values. And that's been since time immemorial. So yeah, I, I feel like I'm just part of that long legacy. And it's uh, both um, uh, a privilege and a passion, but also a responsibility. So I try to, um, <laughs> that gift, if you will, I try to give it as much as I can, but in you know accurate and uh, intentional, purposeful ways and I'm always learning and growing, so it's, it's all, <laughs> I, I, I love it all. Right, so if you have that voice, use it. I know a lot of Native people are very quiet, and so it's more power to you. Please get the word out there for us. So um, can you please tell us about reclaiming the culture in pop culture? Uh, I'll start with a little anecdote from my kiddo who has this weekly news update they have to bring to their history class. Anyway, so I'm always constantly encouraging them to be like, get the indigenous news of the day. So they went with uh, Maria Talchief, who died recently. And uh, of course, they weren't quite up and up on who this person was. But I was like, but this goes into that representation piece. Maria Talchief was a principal ballerina and just worldwide known as just an amazing performer, dancer, artist. And it was always sort of like, oh, and they're, you know, a tribal person too. And that was kind of a groundbreaking, it was very groundbreaking uh, at, at that time, also for today's standards too. But, um, uh, and so, the, you know, her death should be celebrated as other celebrity deaths are also sort of celebrated and, and lauded, remembered, memorialized. Um, and so, because, you know, the question for my kiddo was, no one's gonna care. I'm like, but that's part of your responsibility is to make them care and to make them understand why it was so important to have a person like Maria Talchief breaking these boundaries. So representation in pop culture fits with that because, uh, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, with, with uh, TV, for instance, right now is just this uh, explosion of really amazing talent, uh, both uh, on screen and behind the cameras with shows like Rutherford Falls on Peacock and uh, Reservation Dogs on um, FX. And just sort of um, where the... Uh, pop culture medicine we all kind of needed during this uh, everlasting pandemic that we've been going through. And uh, I don't know about anybody else, but it brought me a ton of joy to see not just, you know, it, you know, for a lot of us, it's enough just to have sort of representation like, oh, it's not my favorite book in the world, but I'm glad it was written, you know, baby steps. But these are like fantastic shows, winning awards, people who aren't Indigenous love them and uh you know can kind of be in on some of the jokes too but it's for us too so it feels a little bit you know the indigenous urge to stay sacred <laughs> but it's uh really fun to to see but it's important right having this representation is feeds into a lot of the issues we see outside of representation so one of the things i always get from folks is you know stories i say you know that's that's cool and all but aren't there more important things to worry about shouldn't you be worried about missing and murdered indigenous relatives? Shouldn't you be worried about, you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act? Shouldn't you X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z? And they're not wrong, right? Yes, I would love to just sit there and talk about, you know, these really high, high, um, uh, intense 
intense topics, right, that, that deserve not just my attention, but everyone's attention. But the thing is, if we can't get the, the mainstream populace, the mainstream being, you know, not indigenous folks, to care about um, things like the, what we would call like the small potatoes, right? So what if that actor who's portraying an indigenous character isn't themselves indigenous? Why is that a big deal? At least there's an indigenous character on TV. And we fight for the indigenous representation of the actor themselves, you know, playing, say, for instance, an indigenous character, because if we don't care about it, no one else is going to care about these other issues. Like, well, what's the harm then, you know, in, in dressing like an uh, uh, Indian princess for Halloween? What's the harm in celebrating Columbus Day? What's the harm? Because all those harms are, are, are erasure, right? When we don't have representation, accurate representation in pop culture, it feeds into the erasure that we feel in these bigger, bigger issues like missing murdered indigenous relatives or Indian Child Welfare Act or, you know, the Oak Flat or whatever, whatever big issue. And there are always big issues, right? You could go tribe by tribe, all 574, whatever there is now, uh, tribes and say, you know, each one of those has a big capital B issue, capital I, right? But if we can't get past that little bit of representation, and it's not little, by the way, because again, it feeds into those, um, we really struggle with uh, the having those that mainstream um, also care about those big issues. So that's that's in a nutshell, a uh, really long story, long show, nutshell, uh, why pop culture and representation of pop culture of, of indigenous people is is important. All right, so I hear you have a new poetry book coming out. Can you please tell us about it? For sure. I'm super jazzed about it, too. So it's called The Trickster Riots, R-I-O-T-S, and it's a play on the storytelling piece because riots, when said, as I say it <laughs> uh, very fast, can sound like rights, R-I-T-E-S. So that's it, it's just a play on words, really. But The Trickster Riots is a collection of poems that explores what it is to be uh, contemporary, uh, indigenous, and you know the things that we that uh, that plague my mind, if you will, or just sort of consume my my mind. But all within a framework of um, a trickster who, um, you know, um, different indigenous folks have different stories of who their tricksters are, what they represent. But in general, tricksters play uh, the role of disruptor, the role of boundary destroyer, the role of questioner. Why are we doing things a certain way? How come it's not done this way? Uh, in Lakota, the trickster does funny things, but also does like really gross things too, like very like taboo. Oh my goodness, no one would ever do this because the trickster has told us and shown us that it shouldn't be done. Um, things like, uh, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of not the worst thing ever, but uh, you know, like stealing, for instance. But there are other like terrible. Uh, things that uh, the trickster does and those stories inform folks hearing them that they should not do those things and here's why. So in contemporary uh, um, context, the trickster is the disruptor, which is a role I like to um, say that I have or a responsibility that I have within my storytelling. So when I talk about things like pop culture and representation, or even the bigger issues like we talked about with uh, missing murdered indigenous women. Those aren't necessarily things, you know, uh, mainstream folks just sort of like gravitate to in conversational style. So if I'm on an airplane, someone asks me how I'm doing, I'm like, oh, you know, just working on how to get this land back, you know, and I have t-shirts on that say, hey, colonizer, or not today, colonizer, that disruptor element helps push those conversations into a forefront. Uh, makes folks, I wouldn't say necessarily, um, you know, on our side after having those conversations, but I think it puts it on the radar. And that's what I think a trickster, if anything, you know, past or in, within contemporary um, uh, context, that, that was their role. And so that's sort of the role that I put on myself too. So, um, and being two-spirit, uh, being uh, queer uh, and, and, um, you know, being a, a mom to a, a queer youth too, there's an added level of responsibility. And so this poetry book explores a lot of all that. So uh, I don't know, there's just some, a lot of really exciting stuff happening with it. So um, 
that's due out uh, early next year. All right. Thank you for sharing, Tate. We look forward to it. Um, I know this is last minute, but do you have any poetry you'd like to share with us today? Yes, I'd love to read you a poem. This is uh, the first poem in my book, The Trickster Riots, and it has the same title. The Lakota trickster is called Iktomi, the spider. Throughout history, Iktomi plays a useful, provocative role, teaching lessons, pushing cultural boundaries. The trickster riots, lyrically studying what it is to be Lakota two-spirit, shedding expectations of performative indigeneity. The author is trickster as writer, furious and malcontent, Author is the trickster as writer, liberatic and ceremonial. And the author is the trickster as writer, queer and full of story. That's sort of just uh, like an explainer of what, what, first of all, trickster is, but also just why, why that, why that character um, uh, for, for the study of poetry. So, yeah, thanks for letting me read that. That's the first time I shared that out loud, so hopefully that went over well. No, that, <laughs> you sounded great, powerful, getting your message across. We loved it. Thank you for sharing. Ooh. Yeah, so um, next part, let's just figure out how, if someone wants to learn more about you, your book, you know, keep up with Tate, um, how can we get a hold of you and that information? Hey, appreciate that. Always willing to chat with folks. I've got a website jtatewalker.com you can just google my name too it's uh worked really hard on those seo results so it comes up first Whoop. tate walker but i'm also on instagram at walker imagining a lot of my poetry performances are posted on there and on twitter at mrs t walker which is that disruptor role if you're interested in uh getting angry with me that's the place to be walker imagining is more of my like beautiful place of pictures in poetry and just keep up with the latest on my website awesome thank you for taking the time to talk with us today tate thank you thanks for listening to native talk arizona produced through a partnership between native health and radio phoenix our sound engineer is javier quiroca and the executive producer is Susan Levy. And I'm Lanasha Pawati, the host of Native Talk Arizona. Join us again next week. If you have any questions, please email us at nativetalkaz at radiophoenix.org.